you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. Today, we tie a bow around the Academy Awards, which suddenly took on a global identity. And then playwright Heidi Schreck and actress Maria Dizia from What the Constitution Means to Me. For the first time, Shrek's deeply personal family stories are being told by someone else on stage. Searching for how to find hope while confronting the truth about the violence in our culture. For me, they've all been kind of various stages of healing, and watching Maria is a whole new stage of that. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. If you've seen the movie Parasite, you know that the film's last 15 minutes are crazy and totally unexpected. That surprise ending happened again last night at the Academy Awards ceremony, where Parasite's Bong Joon-ho not only took home the Best Director Oscar, but his darkly comic thriller became the first foreign-language movie ever to win the Best Picture Academy Award. Jacqueline Coley is editor at Rotten Tomatoes, and she co-hosted The Frame's Oscar special. Jacqueline, welcome back to talk more about the Oscars. Thank you so much for having me, John. So, big picture, Parasites win, does it mean something, or is it a (laughs) blip in the radar? It does mean something. It means a huge thing for Neon, for Bong Joon-ho, for Korean cinema, for Asian cinema, for representation, for the Academy. I think Justin Chang said it best in his piece that he wrote. Parasite doesn't need anything to prove. It's still going to be an amazing film that's going to stand the test of time, but I think the Academy did the right thing for rewarding it. I just want everyone to tap the brakes, and that does not mean we're going to have this glut of foreign language films that break through. Parasite was a seminal and kind of singular achievement. I hope there's more, but we said this after Hattie won. We said this after Hallie won. We said this after Sidney Poitier won. Progress is never a straight line. Taika Waititi won the Best Adapted Screenplay for Jojo Rabbit, and he became the first Maori filmmaker to win an Academy Award and the first Indigenous person to be nominated in the category. Here's what he had to say on stage. Uh, I dedicate this to uh, all the Indigenous kids in the world who uh, want to, uh, to do art and dance and write stories. We are the original storytellers, and uh, we can uh, make it here as well. Thank you. Kia ora. So how important was his win for Best Adapted Screenplay? I was very happy for Taika. I thought his speech really sort of summed it up. Again, they are the first storytellers. I love how he brought it back to that. Um, And if you look, there's only been 10 nominees from an an indigenous background, and he's responsible for four of them, as three of them are his, and one is his producing partner, Chelsea Whitstanley, which was his producer on Jojo Rabbit. So he's really already made a mark on the Academy, going back to his short and now to Jojo Rabbit. So I'm so for Taika, and I think there's a ton of stories still to be told. So it's really great seeing Jojo Rabbit. I'm going to look at animated short. 
There's a movie called Hair Love from Matthew Cherry, who's a great story. He's a football player turned children's author and filmmaker. What's important about this movie is not only what this movie has to say, but who came along in the Hair Love entourage, kid named DeAndre Arnold. He's a Texas high school student who in December was suspended for wearing dreadlocks, and it has been told that he can't go to graduation with his hair the way it is. Yeah, I was so happy for Hair Love. I was a Kickstarter backer, actually, of Hair Love. So I got the note last night where they said, we won. And I felt so happy to help, in a small way, contribute to the success of that film. You know, the Crown Act, which Matthew mentioned in his speech, talks about basically the idea that, you know, black people can still be fired for wearing a natural hairstyle. I wear my hair in a natural hairstyle. If you have an afro or dreadlocks or braids, you could literally be dismissed from your job, prevented from going to school. So it was so incredible to see DeAndre and his mom walk the red carpet with Matthew Cherry. I mean, you have to think to that administrator that kicked him out. It's like, did you think this was what the result would be? But when you see these, you know, these moments like the the kid that had to cut his hair to do the wrestling match and you hear about, you know, news anchors being fired from their job or girls being sent home from school. This is how our hair grows out of our head. And so to make this animation and to have the book and for it now to be a thing where little girls, as Matthew said, are in Target and they see that that picture from Hair Love, the book, and they're like, Mommy, that's me. That kind of representation is priceless. And I also was struck by a comment that Chris Rock made about Mahershala Ali, who has won two Oscars, and his joke was basically, you know what that means to Mahershala Ali when he's pulled over by the police? Nothing. Yeah. That you have to remember the world in which people live and the fact that an Academy Award isn't going to change the way most people are going to see you. I, I think it's absolutely exactly the sentiment, too, that Barry Jenkins felt. He mentioned this in his South by Southwest speech when he did the keynote speech right after Moonlight won for Best Picture. And he recalls during the Oscars circuit, his driver didn't know who he was. And he's and then he was talking to a different driver. And they're like, what are you doing? He's like, ah, oh, man, I'm picking this N-word up. And this is, you know, Barry Jenkins after he's like won Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but the guy driving him is trying to dehumanize him that way. That that's that's the reality for a lot of black creatives and black people in this country. We're talking with Jacqueline Coley from Rotten Tomatoes about this year's Academy Awards. I want to talk about a good win for a woman that is composer Hildur Gudenotter, who took home an Academy Award for Best Original Score in Joker. She's only the fourth woman ever to win the category and the first in 23 years. Here's a clip from her acceptance speech. To the girls, to the women, to the mothers, to the daughters who hear the music bubbling within, please speak up. We need to hear your voices. One of the things I get asked a lot is, why is representation important? And one of the reasons it's important is that if you are a young person or somebody who's aspiring to do something and you see somebody who looks like yourself doing what you dream of, it is hugely motivating. Yeah, and the two branches that have some of the lowest female representation are visual effects and composing. And so she's absolutely speaking and hoping to foster the next generation of female composers. I mean, filmmakers watching Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is how we end up with people like Matthew A. Cherry. You know, women watching someone like Halle Berry win for Best Actress is what fosters someone, you know, coming up like Lupita Nyong'o. It's all about saying, hey, she did it so I can do it. 
at the end of the Oscars. I was at the Governor's Ball. I ran into the current president of the Academy, David Rubin, and a past president of the Academy, Cheryl Boone Isaacs. And even though they didn't say how they voted, I know they were both overjoyed and I think relieved that Parasite won because they knew that if 1917 had won for Best Director for Sam Mendes and Best Picture, the Academy would have a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> yes. This is the one thing I will say. The governors are like the captains and they're also like the managers. And so they understand that this is bigger than their own personal feelings about movies. This is about the legacy of motion pictures and, and the Academy's relevance. And so it does matter what we say when we decide this is best picture. So I, I'm glad they had that moment of relief. I kind of felt that same moment when I was talking to a couple of governors the morning after the nominations and Black Panther got best picture because you could feel them being like, OK, we're, we're moving. And I think uh, that's what it needs for the Academy. There's always like three or four stumbles before they finally clear the hurdle. And so I'm glad they finally did. A day before the Academy Awards, the Independent Spirit Awards were held and The Farewell won Best Feature. The Farewell, an amazing movie, got no Oscar love. There are a lot of other omissions. I think of, you know, Greta Gerwig not being nominated for directing Little Women. So even with Parasite's win, what would you say are the biggest concerns going forward? I think the biggest concerns going forward with the Academy is to not get complacent. You have not achieved or done anything by literally rewarding the best film of the year. That's what you did. It wasn't anything controversial. You picked the best film, which is sometimes an anomaly with the Academy, but that's all they did. So good for you. Continue to do so. Continue to check biases. I think um, there was a lot of talk leading up to this about foreign language films even competing in Best Picture. And there's people today talking about, well, people watch this because it's got subtitles. This is what we have to really move past if we want progress. But yay, Bong. Yay, Neon. I'm not going to let anyone take away this joy. And big ups to Lulu uh, Wong for winning for the Independent Spirits. That was a great moment. And the only person that was more proud than me was watching Barry Jenkins, as he said, a privilege to hold her purse. Jacqueline Coley is editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Jacqueline, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me, John. It was a blast. Coming up next on The Frame, the play What the Constitution Means to Me has a new actor and some new arguments. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. In What the Constitution Means to Me, playwright Heidi Schreck uses her childhood passion for debate and the U.S. Constitution as a gateway to explore how the nation's most treasured document connects with historic and continuous violence against women. She intertwines Supreme Court rulings with her own family's experiences with violence, sexual abuse, and trauma. Schreck performed during the show's Broadway run, but for the current production at the Mark Taper Forum, she chose actress Maria Dizia to take over the part. I spoke with the two of them about this new iteration of the play. Let's start with a scene from the show. A few years ago, I was thinking about the Constitution for various reasons. 
And I started to wonder what exactly it was that my 15-year-old self loved so much about this document. And I did. I loved it. I was a zealot. So there's that line, the 15-year-old self is the 15-year-old self of Heidi, not exactly Maria, but maybe it's a little bit of you, a little bit of her. How did you go about that transformation? I was really thinking about it through um, Heidi's 15-year-old self. My, I mean, I did debate, and I did have that interest in public speaking and debate, but I did not have her interest in the Constitution. I really managed to avoid it in my education for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that was avoid. No, it really, no, it's actually Sadly, surprising. Yeah. No, I no, I feel like that's one of the things I've been thinking about. Is that I was like, it's really amazing how if you're not seeking it out, you could really get through a lot of years of education without encountering it. Um, of course, I had my own love of things that you know I have thought of in terms of uh, you know of being Heidi, but I think very much it was exciting to enter her world and to think about who this 15-year-old girl is who loves the Constitution. Maria, how do you preserve what is innate in the material that mm-hmm. is innate to Heidi's life and make it your own? And having some knowledge of her and her yeah. performance is that help or hurt? Um, It's always going to be my interpretation. But I also think that the language that uh, your character chooses, the, you know, the vocabulary your character chooses, the way they construct sentences, and I think the, the punctuation, you know, where a person stops, the passages where it seems a person doesn't take a breath for a long time, all those things are give you a hint as to what's going on in the person's mind. And if I follow what she's written on the page, then I start to understand more and more what's going on with this person. And so that's what's so great about getting to live in the play now for a while with the repetition of doing it every evening, that what Heidi's written is really, I feel, starting to speak to me more and more. And I feel, you know, that I'm getting closer and closer to um, a mind meld. (laughs) Heidi, so much of this story is not only about the Constitution, but about the history of sexual violence committed or violence committed against women in your family. By watching somebody else perform your text, do you have a new perspective yourself on what this story means and how people receive it? Yes, I think so. I mean, I've been through a long evolution now of my relationship to that history in my family. Uh, You know, when I first started performing the play in 2017, I had never spoken about it out loud in public. I really hadn't told many people at all, uh, even though it was such, it very much shaped my growing up. And so I, I, I've moved through lots of stages, I think, with it, you know, from just confronting the taboo of talking about it in public, um, the terror of that, then moving on to realizing the more I talked about it, the more people would reach out to me or wait to talk to me after the play or send me messages thanking me for talking about it and sharing their own stories. Um, and, and I think by performing the play, I just began to realize uh, even though I understood this statistic, so I understand intellectually that almost everyone in our country has been touched by physical and sexual violence, particularly toward women, uh, like in their either in their immediate family or their extended family or through friendships or personally. I just I, I finally understood on a visceral level how how deep it goes, how common it is in our culture, and that just gave me a new understanding of why 
why I was performing the play, why it was important to get these things like out in the sunlight. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching Maria do it, I think I have the same feeling. I, I have that it feels to me almost like um, a, a kind of healing ritual, simply like telling the stories again and again. Framing them as a part of a larger context, searching for um, a way forward, and searching for how to find hope <laughs> mm-hmm. while confronting the truth about the violence in our culture. For me, they've all been kind of various stages of healing, actually. And watching Maria is a whole new stage of that, I think. We're talking with Heidi Schreck and Maria Dizia about the play, What the Constitution Means to Me. It's now at the Mark Taper Forum. I want to play another clip. Again, this is Maria as Heidi in What the Constitution Means to Me. My mom told me that when you are paralyzed by rage and despair, you have to picture a woman running along a beach with a dog. (laughs) There's more. If you just watch the dog, it keeps going back and forth, back and forth. So it looks like progress is constantly being undone. But if you watch the woman, you can see that she is moving steadily forward and forward and forward. I hope. I mean, it's such a beautiful and haunting line. And you talk about a book, Trauma and Recovery, by Judith Herman, and how that gave you a perspective on this issue And there's a quote in the book that really seems to echo the themes of the play. And the quote is this, Helplessness and isolation are the core experiences of psychological trauma. Empowerment and reconnection are the core experiences of recovery. Mm. And that almost sounds like a description of the play and how it might work with audiences. I'm curious if you feel that. To not just be telling these stories uh, randomly, but actually to be telling them to build an argument about the way our country and the way that the Constitution has affected the lives of women feels like it is the uh, beginning of something. It feels like it's the the beginning of a of a process of of healing. There, there's one experience that I had that was really vivid, and I haven't mentioned it to Heidi, but there was an older white man in the second row, and he was giving me so much positive energy that I just started crying because... In the um, middle of the show. Yeah, but while I was speaking, I mean, I I know very much that my first job (laughs) is to get the words out (laughs) in a way that they are understandable to other people. And I actually felt it didn't feel like that moment was a distraction from the play. It felt like I almost wanted to say that I'm like this. It it made me understand something that I didn't understand before that um, I'll only speak for myself because I don't know how other people feel about it. But that actually to have the support of the people that you can view as the oppressor is an incredibly uh, powerful and humanizing thing for you. It makes you feel that you see the other person looking at you and seeing you as a human being and identifying with you and feeling that what you have to say is important is uh, so freeing. And it made me realize um, how. And so that was that was just a really powerful experience for me as an individual. They're listening. Yeah. No, it really, that was the thing. It was a really... And to to see it happening right there, to see yourself being listened to was very empowering. 
When we return after a short break, more of my chat with Heidi Schreck and Maria Dizia about what the Constitution means to me. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Let's return now to my chat with playwright Heidi Schreck and actress Maria Dizia about what the Constitution means to me. It's currently playing at the Mark Taper Forum. At the end of the play, a real high school student who is not an actress joins Dizia for a debate about whether the Constitution should be abolished and rewritten or preserved as it stands. Miniature copies of the Constitution are passed out to the audience, and one ticket holder gets to choose who wins the debate. The debate is actually the the piece of the play that allows it to remain a living thing. Um, The debate, you know, it is constantly evolving. In fact, I was looking back at our the debates we did in in 2017 and they've changed so much. So the mm-hmm. debate has a lot of room to like actually be looking at what's going on in the country that day and say, hey, this happened today. Let's get it in our cross-examination. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to add this to my list of points. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment today or I'm going to talk about um, impeachment today. So the, that section of the play, the final section, actually is designed to be an evolving thing. And it's it's worked out really beautifully. And it's, I think it's really fun for everyone because everyone in the crew, like the, the young debater, mm-hmm. Maria, me, our stage managers, our whole crew will come in and say, hey, this happened today. Is there a way we can fold it into the debate? Yeah. Um, because it's essentially a a deep dive into the 14th Amendment, Section 1, and because that amendment affects so many things that um, that shape our lives. It affects uh, immigration, birthright citizenship, uh, reproductive rights, abortion. It's, it's obviously was part of Reconstruction, so it has a lot to do with race and what happened after slavery ended. It can kind of reflect back to the audience whatever is going on in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've had people come to the play. uh, I remember last year when so many very restrictive abortion laws were being passed. I had people come to the play and say, oh, you really you really changed the place to talk a lot about abortion tonight. And I'm like, nope, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the play hasn't changed. Uh, I talk about it the same amount I always wow, have, yeah. but I think people view the the play through different lenses depending on what's going on at the time. Maria, the debate that she's referring to mm-hmm. is at the end of the play where you debate with one of two incredibly talented young yes. debaters mm-hmm. about whether or not the Constitution should be scrapped um, and maybe redrafted or left as it is and mm-hmm. wrestled with as it is written And I'm wondering what you think, what does that change in terms of the show itself and what makes for a good debate? Mm -hmm. And does it sometimes turn out that the audience wants to scrap the Constitution? Does that leave the show ending very differently? Both have happened. The audiences have decided to keep the Constitution and they have decided to abolish the Constitution a few times. One woman surprised us, a judge 
Uh, she announced herself that that was her job, and she decided to abolish the Constitution. She really surprised me because I even had turned to Jocelyn, the debater, and I said, oh, you're going to win because judges are usually conservative. And I, <laughs> and I didn't mean uh, conservative in their politics. I just meant conservative in their in their judgment. She really surprised me. That was exciting. Um, yeah, the debate to me is always... Um, it just feels like something breaking open. That's my like physical experience of doing the debate is, you know, I mean, literally the, the lights come on, you know, the lights have been, uh, you know, the audience has been in the dark the whole time and then the lights come up and I can suddenly see all of these faces that I haven't seen since the beginning of the show. And then it's a completely new energy that comes into the show um, that both uh, Jocelyn and Rose Daly bring in. And you can't help but interact with that new, youthful, self-possessed energy. Um, uh, to me, like, hope seems like at the end, the very end. You know, you're already, like, in the ditch, and you already tried a bunch of things. And so now you're going to try hope <laughs> is the last <laughs> thing. And so um, it feels like kind of more to me than just hopefulness. It feels like the the girls, to me, don't seem to be in hope they seem to be really actively working and that they have new ideas and possibly you know a new paradigm for seeing things um than the way i do or maybe the way the the rest of the country has so far when you're performing the play as yourself and not as an invented character there is a different relationship between performer and audience about what is performance and what is truth and what is personal history versus what is story. And Heidi, when you make that decision, it both makes the play more immediate and also, I would imagine for you, more terrifying in terms of how much of you is part of this experience. Uh, yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> no, it, it, it is terrifying. And I certainly, I mean, I've performed the play over 200 times and mm. I've had you know, it feels different on different nights. I've I've had nights where I'm like, I don't know if I got to the hope part. I've had nights where I was very angry performing most of it because of what was happening or or where sort of grief overtook me because they are very personal stories. Um, but somehow the structure of the play kind of always allowed me, even if I would have, say, what I would call a very unhopeful show, there's something about the way the play is constructed I say that as if I didn't construct it, but whoever <laughs> constructed it, it um, it forces you, one, to confront things, and then it also forces you to move forward as a performer, as a person. Um, I like to think in some ways as a citizen. The fact that it ends with that debate requires that you make a commitment to thinking about what a better future might look like. It requires you to take a leap of imagination. It requires you to imagine something better. And I found that that always kind of got me through night after night. Heidi Schreck is the playwright of What the Constitution Means to Me. Maria Dizia is performing it at the Mark Taper Forum through February 28th. Heidi and Maria, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. 
and six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water deal maker, wherever you get podcasts.